0: Hello and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. On today's show, you'll hear a fascinating conversation about the future of blockchain and digital identity. Samsung Next Roy Benyosef speaks with Arroyo Ahayan of Zengo, a startup making the
1: first keyless cryptocurrency wallet. I am Roy Ben from Samsung Next, and this is Will Ouhayoun from uh, Zango. Hi there. Could you start by uh, mentioning your background a little bit and how you got into crypto, which is the area in which Zango is playing? So my background,
2: I've been in tech for about 20 years. I've been doing a few things. I worked in large companies. I worked in small companies. I created a bunch of companies, sold a bunch of them. I also worked on in venture capital a few for a few years, both as an employee and as a co-founder of a venture fund. And after bouncing back and forth between building and investing in companies and this between a few countries in France, in the UK, in Spain, in Israel, in the US, I came back to Israel trying to look for uh, the next thing that would excite me, quite frankly, I couldn't find anything. So you actually kindly, I don't know if you remember, but I was kind of landing in Israel, moving back from the U S and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And you kindly invited me to, to spend some time at uh, Samsung next, trying to figure out things. And I spent some time there and tried to think about a few ideas and at that period, I was listening to some podcasts, and obviously, I knew, I knew about crypto, I knew about bitcoins, I knew about blockchains because of all the noise. And I was—I've been keeping track of you know new things on the internet for many years. And one of the activities in my past is I was you know one of the first writers of the TechCrunch team, so I had already this muscle of keeping track of what matters. But I never could get hold of why Bitcoin was so such a big deal. And one day, I listened to a podcast of. Tim Ferriss interviewing Nick Zabo, which is one of the fathers of crypto. And it really opened my eyes on something that was way beyond the, the initial phases of Bitcoin, which is like it's a way to pay people peer to peer. And it was at the time mostly used for by criminals. It reminded me about the early days of the internet, which was also used mostly by criminals, but some people could look beyond that. So all the applications that could be created out of a network of computers being connected. And the same thing happened to me by listening to that podcast. understood that there was a revolution, not so much about money, but a revolution about how trust can be organized and distributed. And if you're looking at the past 50 years, anything post-Second World War, our society has been damaged by the fact that trust has been attacked from all over the places. Uh, in the financial system, in the information system, at every single level. And I thought it was really important, and I wanted to be part of that. So at some point, I decided to really focus on learning about it, spending time to uh, discover what were the services, the technologies. I started to personally invest my time and my money in it. Down the road, I found a problem that I liked uh, enough to spend my time to try to solve that.
1: What is it? the, the problem that Zango is actually trying to solve?
2: The problem that I really very early on understood that was a big problem and and very problematic is that unlike the traditional financial system where you rely on banks, whether they are retail banks or large banks for uh, custodying your funds, in crypto, you basically are your own custodian. You have to be uh, basically your own bank. And that's a great promise because, you know, more control, more privacy, but that comes with a price, meaning that you have to become a security expert. And while I was trying every single solution on the market, I was really feeling frustrated about all those solutions because they are, they were extremely tedious, they were extremely overwhelming and intimidating, even for someone like me who's been in tech for so many years. So I I thought something was wrong. I thought at first it was me, the problem. (laughs) And very quickly, I spoke with other people. But more importantly, I discovered that many people were losing money, uh, either because of hacks or human errors. So typically, when you go and buy Bitcoin, you will be asked to have a wallet, which is either a software or hardware, and basically ask you to go through these steps where you have to write down a set of words and keep those words in a safe place. And no one tells you what a safe place is. You have to guess. And you're not used to that with traditional web services. You just create a login and account. You have, I forgot my password button. And anytime there's a problem, you press that button or you call someone. And there is no, hello, Mr. Bitcoin uh, on the internet. doesn't exist, right? It's you or, or no one. So I thought that was a big problem that was necessary to be solved. Um, and we could not find any way of solving that elegantly. We could not imagine a solution that was just uh, a better user experience out of cosmetics. It had to be a fundamental new approach because um, wallets require a private key, the secret or the password, the master password of your funds. And so if you lose that master password, you basically lose everything. So we wanted to invent something that was better than that. And so we decided to focus on that problem. How could we make the ownership of Bitcoin and other digital assets way more convenient, but also way more secure uh, so that people are not intimidated by it. Number one, are not harmed by it and basically enable the economy that was promised to
1: everyone. There are multiple uh, solutions, platforms like uh, eToro and a bunch of other stuff that you relinquish some of the control towards uh, a different kind of experience. Could you explain... A, uh, the positive side, because it seems obvious, but also uh, where can it bite you in the ass?
2: The promise of crypto was that you can finally offload the custody of your uh, wealth uh, back to yourself, right? So if all it is about is providing that custody back to third parties, we have done nothing to progress, right? We're still empowering third parties to become major honeypots, liabilities. And by the way, for the past 10 years, billions of dollars of crypto have been lost because of that, as if we have not learned anything from the past 20 years. Bank have been hacked. Yahoo has been hacked. Wells Fargo has been hacked. We know that anytime there is a central system, money is at risk. Beyond that, when the money is in the system of someone, you use that money by their rules. They will decide whether you can or you cannot withdraw that money so you can be locked out. You will use their fees and not the fees of the network. So you will pay their fees because they've decided to do that. And so you're not really in charge and you're not really in control. But more importantly, you are not part of what the initial promise of this whole blockchain industry was about. So today, or when we started, we looked at the world as if you had to choose the best way to die. You either had to rely on the third party and pick that poison and pray that one day nothing wrong is going to happen in spite of all their promises and all the so-called insurance that they have. And it's true, it's very convenient because you just rely on them and they do everything for you. But on the other side, there is the trade-off of if something wrong happens, everything is gone. And the other way of dying is by being yourself your own bank, right? And so you become your own security expert. You think you know about security, and some someday, boom, you wrote you wrote the wrong password, the wrong word. You use the wrong program. You put it on a piece of paper using the wrong ink. You put it somewhere. Someone threw it for you because they thought it was trash, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and your money is gone. So. Today, best of both worlds are either you die or either you die. Right. At some point it's going to happen, but the problem is that you don't realize that at first. I'm putting aside all the tedious onboarding. In a custodian you have to go through KYC, AML, it takes time to get your account approved, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And when you do your self-custody with a normal wallet, it's even worse because you know it's very un- unconventional. So we wanted to eliminate all of that and try to find best of both worlds. How can you have the conveniency of a custodian, someone that you can trust, but that cannot be a liability for you while still enjoying an experience that is familiar that has been created for the past 20 years. And that was kind of the basic inception point of that project. When we looked at all the basic of cryptography on the market, we could not find the right way to do that. So we had to develop and build a kind of new approach, which is based on what is called in industry, multi-party computation and threshold signatures, uh, which is a way of distributing the security. And there is more than that, but it's trying to simplify for the purpose of podcast. And so what we ended up with is a very simple experience, which is a first not just in crypto, but I think a first in fintech at all, where you can have a crypto wallet or a digital asset wallet with absolutely no password. You have nothing to remember, you have nothing to write down, you have nothing to store, and therefore nothing can be stolen. The experience is pretty magical when you try it. It looks like kind of unreal because you never have seen something like that. And at the same time, it feels also very secure because while doing that, you realize that only you can access your own account and no one else. So we can explain how it works and the process. But the bottom line is we looked at the world as it was looking. We could not imagine the future would be like that. We looked at solutions in the market. We couldn't find any. We decided to build something new. We ended up with something
1: that that feels familiar, but that also ends up with best of both worlds. That's basically the picture. It sounds too good to be true. You're saying that I don't need to trust anybody. I don't need to trust myself because it's good enough. and will be secure enough. That's amazing. So... I know uh, that you didn't invent uh, multi-part computation and threshold signature, so could you talk a little bit about? If this is such a holy grail, why isn't this uh, standard yet? What's the challenges in building such a system? So multi-party computation
2: has been around for about 30 years. We did not invent it at all. And basically the promise of of MPC is that together a set of computers or machines or devices can together perform calculation a computation without exposing to each other certain secrets, right? So while respecting the secrecy and the privacy. So that's the basic principle applied to cryptography and applied to to crypto wallets the primitives that we're solving are private key generation private key signature and private key verification and signature verification and what it means is that a set of devices that don't know each other and that don't need to trust each other are going together by way of mathematical operation what's called zero knowledge proofs and other elements being able to fulfill the same role of what a private key does when they're signing a transaction on a normal wallet. So it sounds like a minor difference, all right, sure, instead of having one secret, I have multiple secrets and they will end up doing the same result, right? Signing a transaction on a blockchain and sending funds from point A to point B. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal. Why? Because when you are looking at an exchange, for example, with your custodian, or when you're looking at a wallet, there is a single point of failure where when the secret is compromised, it's game over. It's game over for the custodian, it's game over for you. With multi-party computation and threshold, signature meaning apply to cryptography and apply to wallets there is no single point of failure there is not one secret that if compromised compromises the fund those secrets are generated independently so meaning there is no one single place where they are existing together at any point if one gets compromised nothing gets compromised the attack is baseless The other advantage of leveraging multi-party computation in our case is that traditionally wallets rely on themselves where they are built to do all the operations that they do. And so they are constrained by the limitation of the hardware or the software they run in, whether this is a hardware wallet or a mobile application. When you are distributing the security, you are enabling the computation to be more powerful and doing things that usually a traditional wallet cannot do. So in our case, it enables us to build an onboarding experience that has been unparalleled until now using certain things like, for example, advanced biometrics. Why has not that happened until now? Well, first, the good news is that it's starting to happen. And seriously, we are far from the only company leveraging multi-party computation today. There was yesterday at CSC, a conference in San Francisco, uh, a fantastic talk of Stephen Goldfeder, which is one of the greatest minds of multi-party computation. And he had this map of all these companies using multi-party computation. We were one of them, by the way, uh, but we are far from alone. The reason it had not happened until now is because The devices, the computing power of the devices, in particular on mobile, were not strong enough to enable these things. There were a requirement um, in terms of CPU, in terms of GPU, in terms of memory allocation, about of uh, calculation that was just not possible. So you could do something on the computer, and um, just to uh, for the anecdote, when we started with the project and we presented the project to you, the only proof of concept that we had was on the computer. And at the time, the calculation took about two minutes to <laughs> to, uh, to to run a demo just to get the wallet started. And we had to fill that time where we were explaining what we were doing. So it didn't look like very slow. And by the time we were finished with the product, we're doing now with that in fraction of a second. That would not have been able to be performed a few years back because the devices were just not there. Also, the science was not advanced enough. There were a lot of things in zero knowledge proof that were not developed. And I guess we arrived at the timing where this was the beginning of being possible. So today, we're proud of what we're doing. We're proud of not being the only one because you don't want to be the only one, especially in cryptography. And today, this is something that is uh, not just existing, but also developed and adopted by uh, many, many companies.
1: There's also another challenge, not specifically related to MPC, but a challenge to a lot of wallets that, uh, that I see in the market is that, Coins keep popping up. Some of them are are very different, some of them are not so different, but the adoption of a new coin is a big issue. In the older wallets, you had to buy a brand new wallet just to house a new set of coins. Uh and I know you're addressing it in a very unique way. So that's true. So
2: so when you are supporting new chains more than new coins, right. and many wallets will mislead their customers or their users by saying that they are multi asset by which they mean that they will support multiple coins, but not necessarily multiple blockchains. Uh, So for example, Bitcoin is one blockchain, uh, Stellar is another blockchain, Binance chain is another blockchain, Monero is another blockchain, versus Ethereum, which is a blockchain in itself, and some of the tokens of Ethereum, which are part of the same blockchain. So when you are supporting one specific blockchain, it's easy to support the derivative of that blockchain. So for example, if you support Bitcoin, it's rather easy to support Litecoin, right? But if you support Bitcoin very well, it doesn't mean that you will know how to support Monero. Why? Because the crypto primitives and the elliptic curves that are required to supporting the key management, meaning how a we'll key, private key is generated, how private key are signed and verified, as signatures are verified, are very different from one blockchain to another. In the case of Zango and the way we operate, because of the multi-party computation approach, we have abstracted a lot of the things that are done at the very primitive level, which enables us, and I'm trying to simplify here again, not to go too technical, but it simplifies the three steps that are required when you're onboarding to a new blockchain. So key generation, key signature, and signature verification, the, the three primitives that matter for wallets. So for example, uh, Libra was announced a few months ago. So I know there is a lot of uh, polemics around, around Libra, but let's focus on the technicality of Libra as a project and not the meaning in terms of economics and, and regulation. So Libra was announced. By the time they were announced, we were supporting three chains. We were supporting uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Binance chain. We look at their code base, and in two days, we were able to build the first uh, wallet for Libra before anyone, including before Libra. It's not that we particularly like to brag about that, but it just demonstrate the capacity, the superior capacity of such a technical approach. It's not just good enough to say that it's fast, it's also highly secure and reliable because you can be very fast and very insecure and in this world there's no place for insecurity. So we were able to do that and uh, later on we were able to pour that experience into the wallet. Uh, so Zango today is, is the only wallet uh, supporting Libra more than any other uh, wallet in the, in the market. We were able to do that. You can do that with all the type of approaches uh, but with different costs and different trade-offs. The beauty of our approach is that for the user For the customer of Zango, all of that is seamless. It looks like a browser uh, where you can type any type of URL and you don't have to ask yourself whether it supports Flash or it supports JavaScript or it supports this or it supports that. It just works. Although we're still very early, eventually and very soon you'll have all the assets that matter without asking
1: to yourself whether your wallet is supporting it or not. Right now, there's crypto users and there's fintech fiat money and uh, one uses these services or the others. Uh, what kind of future do you foresee where these intersect, and what would be the killer app to actually do that? I think those two worlds will blur, will blur and merge. What we've seen during the past 20
2: years is that every single asset starts to become digital. Information is digital. E-commerce is more and more digital. The only thing that has not become digitally native yet and put aside the interfaces that we are using. I'm talking about the core assets that we are using is money. Money is still based on a very prehistorical technology, uh, meaning basically the ability of a central bank to produce a reserve, most of the time a fractional reserve, which can lead to very, very big macroeconomical issues, which end up for us citizens paying more and more taxes, but that's a different issue. And we do not have a way to produce wealth that is digitally native. And so that's basically initially the premise of Bitcoin, but it can apply not just to money, but to any financial assets, stocks, bonds, even like things like uh, real estate and art that could be also digitally native. If you think about it, by the way, domain names, are a form of digital assets. And remember in the early days of the web, no one wanted to buy a dot com because like, what the hell? Who's, who will want travel com, right? What for, right? I've got an agency next to my door and uh, I can book my travel there. And, you know, fast forward everyone is today booking their travel via internet and travel.com is worth tens of millions of dollars. So think about it in the same way for things that we are using on a daily basis and that are becoming more and more digital. The way we represent, for example, equity in a company. Right. Which today is basically done for lawyers and agreements and papers and certificates sent to a registry of commerce. All of that should become digital. There's no way it should not. And it started to become. So what we imagine in the future is that every single asset that we as citizens or we as companies Uh, interact with will be digital digital and digital native. And if that is the case, you will need a set of tools, a set of infrastructures that enable you to transact with, to custody, and to transfer. And so wallets will become a fundamental uh, set of tools that anyone will need, whether this is individuals or, or companies. Of course, for that, you want them to be usable and you want them to be available, meaning with you all the time. And if you're giving back away to a third party or on a piece of a hardware wallet, which requires a computer to be used and be in a pocket, well, you cannot be developing that economy. You are just like storing value. And if all we were doing was storing our money somewhere, there will be no economy. So we imagine a world where assets are digitally native first, where wallets are available and secure to use, and always with you, meaning in your pocket, uh, meaning in your mobile phone, uh, of course, they have to be uh, to be done in a way that are secure and usable,
1: based on conversations that that we have and based in general, i also uh, take into consideration that identity and personal documents are a form of of digital assets of that kind, which brings an interesting point. You have countries like uh, uh, eu led by Germany. That has a project for decentralized uh, personal identities, and they are pushing it forward. But they are unwilling to work with companies outside the EU because of trust issues, which is, which is uh, uh, funny as it is because it's supposed to be trustless. And then you have the likes of uh, uh, Korea in a way against crypto uh, trading, and India in all forms of cryptocurrency. So I would like to have your, you know, your expert opinion in understanding if a. How much do governments stand in the way of that revolution? And B, what's the what's the the best turnout that you foresee?
2: So it's a great question. Uh, I think uh, digital identity is uh, you know one of the gold uh, milestones that uh, everyone is trying to to think about uh, because this is how this is going to be the parameter that will enable people to interact and transact into an economy. Today, if you think about it, for example, in the U.S., your best friend as a digital identity is your credit score. If you do not have a credit score, you're basically not part of the economy. You cannot buy, you cannot buy a car, you cannot rent an apartment, you cannot buy a house, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. But to get a credit score, you need to have a history. So you basically have to build that financial identity out of doing that. So how do you do that for the rest of the world? And even a credit score is a problem because have you see, have we seen with Equifax once it's custodied by a third party becomes a honeypot. And when it's hacked, well, this is a catastrophe because uh, someone else can impersonate you. So it's something that is really, really uh, dangerous. Uh, So there is a lot of projects and initiatives. And right now I have to say we are except in India uh, at the level of experiments uh, no country has managed to A, define what is a digital identity, even less put that to a uh, uh, applicable solution. So you have a bunch of experiments. C- the country most advanced in the world for that is India. They have basically onboarding and 100% of their citizen to a digital identity system, meaning that you do not need anymore to have any piece of paper. Uh, you are biometrically onboarded to uh, to a system, and that translates to uh, basically a, a digital wallet. Uh, that you have on you and that you can use for anything, proving that you are you, and that interacts with financial system, which interacts with immigration system, which is uh, integrate with all the administrative system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's probably one of the most advanced countries in the world to do that. Estonia has also done something, but Estonia is kind of a weird ship in Europe because, like, they, it's like the lab of the rest of Europe where they do things great stuff, but the rest of Europe is not really adopting it. I think they are probably one of the most forward-looking countries. In Europe, but uh, sadly it never expands beyond Estonia. Uh, then you have indeed Korea, uh, which is also very forward-looking in those topics. I mean, no one has missed the news. China has declared blockchain a national priority. Of course, you have to take that with certain, like you know, uh, disclosures. Everything done in China is hyper-controlled and the opposite of what blockchain are supposed to be about, meaning decentralized and trustless. But one of the chapters they have looked into is uh, national digital identity. So it's very clear that some important countries are working into it, and those who will not think about those things will be left behind. So that's basically an agenda that I don't think there is one country in the world that is not working on. When you think about digital identity, and it's interesting, I had a conversation about that yesterday, is what defines who you are? Right? Is this your name? Maybe is your date of birth? Maybe I think those are more like signals about who you are. But really, what defines who you are is what you do, right? And by the way, there's a great book that just been out. It's number one bestseller in Amazon called "What You Do Is Who You Are" by Ben Horowitz of of, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Basically, what is what we do? What we do is how we transact, right? How we interact with one another. So I think the future of digital identity will have some signals which are birthrights like names, dates, countries of birth and stuff like that. But more importantly, we'll keep a track record of what we've done and how we transact with one another and with different businesses. Now the crux and the secret sauce, which no one has managed, is how we make a safe system uh, that is user controlled, that is private, and that can still be compliant with the different rules of the country. Because if you make a public system, it's a catastrophe. Everyone knows everything about everyone. You don't want that. If you make it hyper private, you enable criminals to do whatever they want. So what you want is something that is user controlled, meaning private, but that's still able to disclose what we do, who we are to uh, regulators and people who are on it to enforce the laws. The systems to, to do that today do not exist. Uh, they are being built and what could be a very fundamental layer into doing that. So the same way you have Bitcoin, Ethereum, probably tomorrow, your digital money, your know, digital dollars, digital euros. You could have your digital yourself in the same wallet that are connected to your transaction uh, and that will be controlled by you and disclosed to whoever is needed. Thank you, Uriel. Do you have any words of summary? I'm trying to assume here that most of your audience is not into blockchain and into crypto. Uh, So my message to everyone here is uh, learn about it. You don't have to invest millions of dollars or even invest at all to understand why this is important, why it matters. There are great ways to learn about it, read about it, go to events, listen to some great podcasts. If you are willing to download a wallet, eventually download Zango, but download a few so you understand, buy $10, $5 worth of crypto and try to feel for yourself. And then you realize why this matters and why the future is going to be built around blockchains. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thanks again for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice, or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at samsungnext, or send us an email to podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time.